Well, welcome to our first coronavirus edition of Anacortes Mindfulness Community, uh, our first online gathering. Uh, it's a little, it's a little strange. I'm uh, used to seeing you all face to face and giving a talk to 2D images like a bunch, Brady Bunch on my screen, is uh, is kind of kind of fun. So we're starting today our. Uh, exploration of the book Pieces Every Step by Thich Nhat Hanh. And this is, this is, I'm discovering a particularly powerful moment for me because I read this book, I don't know exactly how long ago, I'm guessing it was 23 years ago, something along in, in that, that ballpark. And it's what introduced me to Thich Nhat Hanh and his style of practice. Uh, and I still remember exactly where I was when I read it and uh, what I was feeling when I read it. Oh, we have a young friend. Hi. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so uh, it's as I come back to this experience now and read it again, I'm just really moved. I'm deeply moved. I, one of the things I remembered when I first read the book was that it was transformative to me. But I also had this concurrent thought that, well, this is just too simple. It's so simple, it's, it's, it's trivial. Uh, anybody could have said this. And I think I took that idea and I ran with it and I spent uh, 20 years complicating it. And then I came back to the book and I read the book you know, with, with uh, fresh eyes and I said, oh my gosh, this really is the most beautiful appropriate, effective way to share practice with people in the West. Uh, and so I'm, I'm filled with gratitude at, at uh, Thich Nhat Hanh for the way he has communicated to us. So in this talk tonight, what I want to do is I want to uh, talk a little bit about who Thich Nhat Hanh is, because we throw his name around, but do we really know that much about him? And, and uh, so I'll talk a little bit about who he is and why that's it why he wrote this book. And then, then we'll go through the, the book itself, the first uh, four chapters. And um, I'd like to read those chapters. They're not long at all. We can read them out loud to each other. And then I have uh, some comments uh, on it and I'll try and not do disservice to his poetically direct, simple words. So let's talk a little bit about Thich Nhat Hanh's life. Um, so he was born Nguyen Xuan Bao, and he was born in central Vietnam in 1926. And he became a novice monk at the age of 16 in 1942 at Tu Hu Monastery in Hue, Vietnam. A beautiful monastery uh, that I've been lucky enough to visit. He received full ordination as a monk in 1951, and that's when he received the name Thich Nhat Hanh. So when he was ordained in, uh, at 1942 at age 16, he was a novice monk, so he was a trainee. But he became a full monk in 1951, and that name Thich Nhat Hanh has a meaning. So the first word, Thich, it means, it's the Vietnamese translation of Shakya, and Shakya is the name of the Buddhist clan. So it's given to all the monks and nuns, uh, and, and it means um, a member of that lineage, that clan. So tick, and then nyat means one, and han means action. So one action is what his name means, one action. And by one, it means one in the universal sense of one, and also one in that sense of direct, direct action. And I think that is really, uh, really describes him. His teacher must have known him quite well. So as a young monk in the 1950s, he grew dissatisfied with the Buddhist establishment that he inherited. He found it to be um, bound by rules and traditions and not necessarily appropriate to what was really going on in the country. So he was this kind of a, of a rebel and a reformer from the very beginning. 
you know, as a young man, he was taking on the establishment, uh, the Buddhist establishment in Vietnam. So he, one of the ways this expressed was that he saw that the Buddhist education that tra was traditionally given to monks uh, wasn't broad enough. So he went to the University of Saigon and studied at the University of Saigon. Uh, he, did, he did little things that were big symbols, like he was the first monk to ride a bicycle in Vietnam. Before that, it was, it was not allowed. And he said, well, I'll get on a bicycle anyway. And he rode it. Uh, he's always been willing to shake things up. So he received lamp transmission from his teacher, Chan Tat, in 1966, just as he was preparing to leave Vietnam. So it was given in response to the fact that he was leaving. Um, but I think his teacher had a great deal of, of confidence in him uh, at that point. But backing up a little bit, he'd previously left Vietnam in 1961, and he went to teach at Princeton and at Columbia. So we think of Thich Nhat Hanh sometimes as this rather simple monk, maybe not so sophisticated, and the language he uses is so simple. But this was a man who already at this point spoke six languages fluently. So he spoke Vietnamese, English, French, Sanskrit, Pali, and Japanese. So that's not so simple. And he was a poet and an author and an activist and historian and an expert in Buddhist history and literature. And these things here were all in him already in his studies. Um, <clears throat> in, in that time before he left Vietnam, he'd already started a magazine. He'd written a number of books. He was organizing people. Uh, he was really quite active, quite an engaged Buddhist. But when he left uh, to come to the, to the West, he suffered a lot from being in this strange individualistic culture in the United States. And I, began, I suspect this is when he began to formulate how to teach Westerners, because he could feel the suffering that Westerners feel. It wasn't an abstraction. He was here. He was uh, disconnected like we're disconnected. So in 1963, he returned from teaching uh, in, in New York and in, in, the, in the Northeast, and he founded the youth, the School for Youth for Social Service in, in Vietnam. And this was a nonpartisan group that was uh, helping people with the effects of the French and the American wars. Because the French and the Americans were dominating as, as Vietnam had been dominated by other cultures for centuries. Um, and so he was helping people uh, in a nonpartisan way to cope with the effects of the, the war. And so consequently wasn't trusted by either side. He, he wouldn't choose one over the other. And both sides wanted him to establish allegiance. So he, was, um, he wasn't trusted. And many of those people in the School for Youth and Social Service were killed uh, because of their actions. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a costless action that he was taking. So in 1966, he, he again um, returned back to Vietnam to establish the Order of Interbeing, which is the order that uh, I'm ordained in, uh, symbolized by this brown jacket. And he, it was a new order that he, that he created based on the traditional bodhisattva precepts, but would engage in experiential, experimental practice. Nothing abstract and a mind game. It was on the ground experiential practice. And he ordained six people in 1966, three men and three women. And uh, the, he offered as part of the, the order a choice, whether you live as a celibate monastic or whether you live as a lay person. And so the three women all chose to live celibate and the three men chose to live as lay people. And uh, Sister Chan Kong, who has been working alongside him uh, almost all his career, was one of those first six people. And I'm going to send, uh, when I send out the summary by email, I'm going to send a link to an article about her life because Thich Nhat Hanh can't be understood alone. He has to be understood with the Sangha and with, uh, with Chan Kong. 
because she's been there every step of the way. And she's, been, she's a, a wonderful teacher in her own right. And there was no new members uh, for the Order of Interbeing until the mid-1980s. So those first six people were, for the first 20 years, the only Order members. So Thai established Plum Village in 1982 in France. And that grew from uh, another community called the Sweet Potato Community that he established to help Vietnamese refugees that had come to France to resettle after the war and, and to help them uh, get on their feet. But it shifted over time to uh, start to begin to bring in all sorts of Westerners that would want to come. And that led to creation of Palm Village. And it was purchased for an old vineyard was purchased in the Bordeaux area um, by, a, by a, a follower, a Vietnamese follower who originally purchased the, the first property. And uh, the old stone buildings were what was used as the meditation hall and the sleeping quarters. And uh, it, was, it was very rustic for a long time, a single bathroom for the whole, the whole Palm Village Monastery. And eventually it expanded. So that became Upper Hamlet, and then they bought Lower Hamlet, which actually has the plum orchard for the plum, plum village. And then later New Hamlet, and there's a middle Hamlet between the upper and lower. And then it expanded out to Deer Park Monastery in California and Blue Cliff in, in New York, Magnolia in Mississippi. And now there's monasteries in Thailand, Vietnam, Taiwan, Germany, uh, lay communities like ours all over the world. So from that humble beginning of helping Vietnamese refugees resettle in France, all that grew. So what's his message? Um, the way I think of it is his teaching has arisen in, as a result of what he has faced. And it's, it's arisen as a result of his suffering. So I, that rings true to me because I know that for myself, uh, anytime I offer teaching, it's always in response to something. It doesn't just sit there and bubble along. I don't just walk along saying, oh, I want to uh, teach about that or talk about that. It's always in response to something that's happening inside of me or inside of someone else. And so the teaching has a response to it. And um, I, I, as I've been thinking over Thich Nhat Hanh's life, I think he's got four distinct phases of suffering that he encountered that he's taught to. And so I just like to mention what, I, what those are. So the first phase was to heal Vietnamese Buddhism. So that's the first thing, the first suffering that he encountered was that he felt like Vietnamese Buddhism was not working well. And he wanted to establish a relevant, useful, engaged practice in Vietnam. So this was in the 50s and in the early 60s that he was doing this. I mean, he never really com completely gave that up, but that was the real focus. So he started to write books and publish magazines and experiment with different ways to live as a monk than, than he had inherited. So that was the first phase. The second phase was to heal the harm from the American war. Because this came to him and this was, uh, this was something he could not avoid, that he was watching uh, the destruction all around so that's when he started the School for Youth for Social Service. He started the Order of Interbeing. He created all sorts of programs for refugees. So his teaching was very practical, hands-on, not abstract in any way. So then the third phase of his teaching is when he went to the West and he began to see the suffering of Western lay people. And he began to experience for himself the suffering of living in the Western cultures that he found. And he saw how much individualism and greed were harming people in the West. It was a different kind of suffering than in the East. And so, so he felt it and he saw it. And so he began to write very simply and directly for the Western mind. And, and that is really where this book came from. He began to see that he needed to teach in a way that was accessible for our kind of suffering. And eventually that led him to establish the monasteries and lead all these retreats for Westerners that were appropriate for Westerners. Different than how he uh, grew up. 
different how he, than how he was trained, but he found ways to make it appropriate for us in the West. And then finally, the fourth phase was he pivoted at some point towards creating a Western monastic tradition. He'd focused on lay people, and now he wanted to bring in the monastic practice. Uh, and he, he saw that we really needed a fourfold sangha, monks and nuns, lay women and lay men. We need all of those to really have a, a solid foundation. So that's, that's been his focus really for most of the last 20 years is monastic teaching and monastic practice. So that's a little bit of a, of a um, intro to Thich Nhat Hanh's life. So let's turn to this book now that we're gonna look at. So Pieces Every Step, he wrote, I believe, in response to the suffering that he saw among Western lay people. And so he, the themes of this book that, that, that I see um, are several. One of them is that happiness is here and now. It's a central theme. You know, in the West, we are always looking somewhere else for our happiness. He could see that. So he knew that we needed to, we needed to have a way back to this present moment to find our happiness here. We're all capable of it. And it's our birthright to be awake, but we have lost our way. So another theme is that our everyday life is all we need to wake up. We don't need to become monks or nuns. We don't need to uh, sell our, all our belongings. Whatever we need is right here. You know, it's not what we do, but it's how we do it in our very lives. That's one theme. Another theme is that, as the title says, peace is every step. Peace is found, Thich Nhat Hanh used to say, now or never. We find this now or we don't ever find it. Uh, he, he was struck, I believe, by the, the oxymoron of that phrase, the war to end all wars that they called World War I. You know that, and it's, it's demonstrated that that doesn't work. It's demonstrated that that's a delusion. You know, if you look at what happened after that war, it didn't end all wars at all. It led almost immediately to another war, but almost immediately to Hitler's rise. So Thich Nhat Hanh wants us to realize that a central truth is that we have to water peaceful seeds in the present moment if we want a peaceful future. We can't do it by uh, creating violence in the present moment and then expect that a future will be anything but violent. So shall we crack the book? So what I'd like to do is um, we, uh, not to read the introductions, but to, to start on um, page, well, I guess it's page one, isn't it? No, it's page, Five, uh, 24 brand new hours are before me, so I guess that's page five. And I'm wondering uh, if there be someone who is interested in reading this first chapter aloud to us. Great, Ron. Can you unmute yourself? And um, I'm. Can you hear me? Perfect. Yeah. 24 brand new hours. Every morning when we wake up, we have 24 brand new hours to live. What a precious gift. We have the capacity to live in a way that these 24 hours will bring peace, joy, and happiness to ourselves and others. Peace is present right here and, and now in ourselves and in everything we do and see. The question is whether or not we are in touch with it. We don't have to travel far away to enjoy the blue sky. We don't have to leave our city or even our neighborhood to enjoy the eyes of a beautiful child. Even the air we breathe can be a source of joy. We can smile, breathe, walk, and eat our meals in a way that allows us to be in touch with the abundance of happiness that is available. 
We are very good at preparing to live, but not very good at living. We know how to sacrifice 10 years for a diploma, and we are willing to work very hard to get a job, a car, a house, and so on. But we have difficulty remembering that we are alive in the present moment, the only moment there is for us to be alive. Every breath we take, every step we make can be filled with peace, joy, and serenity. We need only to be awake, alive in the present moment. This small book is offered as a bell of mindfulness, a reminder that happiness is possible only in the present moment. Of course, planning for the future is a part of life, but even planning can only take place in the present moment. This book is an invitation to come back to the present moment and find peace and joy. I offer some of my experiences and a number of techniques that may be of help. But please do not wait until finishing this book to find peace. Peace and happiness are available in every moment. Peace is every step. We shall walk hand in hand. Bon voyage. <laughs> Thank you, Ron. Yeah. <clears throat> so I am alive. Therefore, I have what I need to be happy. That's really amazing realization. I'm alive, therefore I have what I need to be happy. So how radically different that is than the Western idea of happiness. You know, we, we have enshrined in the, in the US Constitution, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Happiness is something out there that we are pursuing that we want to possess in some way and bring home and hold on to it. But Ty is saying, no, just by being alive, the conditions are enough for us to be happy. All we have to do is pay attention to it. Wow. What freedom that is. That right now, in, in the conditions we're in, right now, in this moment, doing exactly what we're doing. Everything we need is present for our happiness. Nothing to pursue. So, um, anybody want to read the next little bit? The Dandelion Has My Smile, that, that chapter? Yeah, great. Karen, thanks. The dandelion has my smile. Can you hear me? Okay. If a child smiles, if an adult smiles, that is very important. If in our daily lives we can smile, if we can be peaceful and happy, not only we, but everyone will profit from it. If we really know how to live, what better way to start the day than with a smile? Our smile affirms our awareness and determination to live in peace and joy. The source of a true smile is an awakened mind. How can you remember to smile when you wake up? You might hang a reminder such as a branch, a leaf, a painting, or some inspiring words in your window or from the ceiling above your bed so that you can notice it when you wake up. Once you develop the practice of smiling, you may not need a reminder. You will smile as soon as you hear a bird singing or see the sunlight streaming through the window. Smiling helps you approach the day with gentleness and understanding. When I see someone smile, I know immediately that he or she is dwelling in awareness. This half smile how many artists have labored to bring it to the lips of countless statues and paintings? I am sure the same smile must have been on the faces of the sculptors and painters as they worked. Can you imagine an angry painter giving birth to such a smile? Mona Lisa's smile is light. 
just a hint of a smile. Yet even a smile like that is enough to relax all the muscles in our face, to banish all worries and fatigue. A tiny bud of a smile on our lips nourishes awareness and calms us miraculously. It returns us to us the peace we thought we had lost. Our smile will bring happiness to us and to those around us. Even if we spend a lot of money on gifts for everyone in our family, nothing we buy can give them as much happiness as the gift of our awareness, our smile. And this precious gift costs nothing. At the end of a retreat in California, a friend wrote this poem. I have lost my smile, but don't worry, the dandelion has it. If you have lost your smile and yet are still capable of seeing that a dandelion is keeping it for you, the situation is not too bad. You still have enough mindfulness to see that the smile is there. You only need to breathe consciously, consciously one or two times and you will recover your smile. The dandelion is one member of your community of friends. It is there quite faithful, keeping your smile for you. In fact, everything around you is keeping your smile for you. You don't need to feel isolated. You only have to open yourself to the support that is all around you and in you. Like the friend who saw that her smile was being kept by the dandelion, you can breathe in awareness and your smile will return. Thank you, Karen. So if we know that we have enough, then our smile reflects that awareness. It just naturally arises. And we also know that when we've lost our smile, we've lost our connection to our true self. We've lost our connection to the sufficiency of ourselves and the sufficiency of the conditions of this moment. So Thich Nhat Hanh invites us to set an, an intention to be able to see this first thing on waking up because we have to train our minds to see this. We've already trained our mind to be distracted away from it. So we have to actively train our mind in order to see this, to, to see the conditions. Uh, <laughs> my computer's talking to me, sorry. <clears throat> so he knows that we have to set an attention to be able to retrain our minds. And so that's what he's inviting us to do. So it helps us remember that we aren't separate. And when we realize we're connected to all things, we naturally will smile because we feel a sense of security and belonging and at-homeness. But when we're separate, it's hard for us to find that. So when, when he invites us to set an intention, is to set the intention to make sure that we can see that we are not a separate self So he wants us to know that um, my happiness is your happiness, that the dandelion holds that happiness, the blue sky holds that happiness. They're always available to us. The happiness he's asking us to smile with is the happiness that is not mine. It belongs to everything. We just touch into it. When I touch into that, I naturally smile. And I realize that all my pursuing, all my chasing after things, all my pushing away from things is unnecessary. It's already here. Okay, how about the conscious breathing section? Anyone want to volunteer to read that?
Okay, no one volunteers, I can read it. There are a number of breathing techniques that you can use to make life vivid and more enjoyable. The first exercise is very simple. As you breathe in, you say to yourself, breathing in, I know that I am breathing in. As you breathe out, say, breathing out, I know that I am breathing out. Just that. You recognize your in-breath as an in-breath and your out-breath as an out-breath. You don't even need to recite the whole sentence. You can use just two words, in and out. This technique can help you keep your mind on your breath. As you practice, your breath will become peaceful and gentle and your mind and body will also become peaceful and gentle. This is not a difficult exercise. In just a few minutes, you can realize the fruit of meditation. Breathing in and out is very important and it's enjoyable. Our breathing is the link between our body and our mind. Sometimes our mind is thinking of one thing and our body is doing another and mind and body are not unified. By concentrating on our breathing in and out, we bring body and mind back together and become whole again. Conscious breathing is an important bridge. To me, breathing is a joy I cannot miss. Every day I practice conscious breathing and in my small meditation room, I have calligraphed a sentence. Breathe, you are alive. Just breathing and smiling can make us very happy because when we breathe consciously, we recover ourselves completely and encounter life in the present moment. So he's telling us that you know, meditation is not a tool to get somewhere. It's not a big project we have to take up. We don't meditate to acquire more peace. Uh, I think we can restate the title of the book, Peace is Every Step, as awareness is, or excuse me, awakening is every breath. Awakening is every breath. When we breathe like that, we don't have to get anywhere but just this breath. We don't breathe so that we become a Buddhist master that is awakened and has that possession and holds onto that possession and says, ah, I'm awake for now and forever. No, it's you breathe in and that is awakening. If you breathe in with full awareness, that is awakening in that moment. When you breathe out with full awareness, that is awakening in that moment. And there's nothing more you have to do. And when that moment is gone, if you're no longer aware of your breathing, you're no longer awake. It comes and goes just like everything else comes and goes. So we don't have to strive to be awakened in the future. We don't have to make this into a huge project. We simply have to take one breath. And awakening is right there. So simple. So he talks about breathing to unite the body and the mind. So how does that work? Well, in my experience, my mind can go in a thousand directions. You may have the same experience. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. No, not me. But yeah, my mind is just going everywhere all the time, particularly when I'm suffering. And that could, suffering can be either that I want something or I don't want something. I can suffer just as much from either one. But the body is always in the present moment. The body doesn't know how to think about the future or the past. The body is right here, right now. And that mind that can go in a thousand directions goes off everywhere. But in, when you unite that mind with the body, it brings the united mind body back to the present moment, which is the only moment that we have. The mind thinks that there's a past and a future. The body knows that there's a present. So bringing those two back together unites us. That's lovely. 
This conscious breathing, this breathing in and breathing out, I remember first trying it and it seemed like, oh, this is really magical. And then it very quickly began to sing like, okay, so that's what you do when you first start this. Now what do you do? Now what's the real practice? But it really is the real practice. I, I, I had to waste a lot of time running around, trying all kinds of things before I could see that he was telling me the real practice right there in my, in my very first exploration with him. But I just couldn't do it. It's both the path and the destination. This breath is the path and it's the destination itself. Bringing mind and body together in the breath is the path and the destination. It's the way the awakened masters like Thich Nhat Hanh live. They don't live in some altered state different from us. They live in their breath, coming in and out. That's what makes them awake. That simple practice. So we could say peace is every step, or we could say awakening is every breath. It's the same thing. Same thing. Okay, how about the last section we're going to take up? Present moment, wonderful moment. Anyone want to read that? I can read again. Okay. I'm willing. Oh, do we have another volunteer? Okay, Ron, we have another volunteer. So, Mario, why don't you, you read for us then, huh? Thank you. And um, I'm sorry I'm on my iPhone instead of my computer. And I also have a cat, which I hope will um, <laughs> not join in my presentation. Well, she's in your um, present moment, so she comes in great. <laughs> present moment, wonderful moment. In our busy society, it is a great fortune to breathe consciously from time to time. We can practice conscious breathing, not only while sitting in the meditation room, but also while working at the office or at home, while driving our car or sitting on a bus, wherever we are at any time throughout the day. There are so many exercises we can do to help us breathe consciously. Besides the simple in-out exercise, we can recite these four lines silently as we breathe in and out. Breathing in, I calm my body. Breathing out, I smile. Dwelling in the present moment, I know this is a wonderful moment. Breathing in, I calm my body. Reciting this line is like drinking a glass of cool lemonade on a hot day. You can feel the coolness permeate your body. When I breathe in and recite this line, I actually feel my breath calming my body and mind. Breathing out, I smile. You know a smile can relax hundreds of muscles in your face. Wearing a smile on your face is a sign that you are master of yourself. Dwelling in the present moment. While I sit here, I don't think of anything else. I sit here and I know exactly where I am. I know this is a wonderful moment. It is a joy to sit stable and at ease and return to our breathing, our smiling, our true nature. Our appointment with life is in the present moment. If we do not have peace and joy right now, when will we have peace and joy? Tomorrow or after tomorrow? What is preventing us from being happy right now? As we follow our breathing, we can say simply, calming, smiling, present moment, wonderful moment. This exercise is not just for beginners. Many of us who have practiced meditation and conscious breathing for 40 or 50 years continue to practice in the same way because this kind of exercise is so important and so easy. Thank you. 
And we had a nice little meow in there too. That was good. <laughs> so how do we do this conscious breathing? You know, it's easy to read the words, but it's not so easy to do. You know, it's, it's, uh, it sounds like it should be really easy. Like, like we think we have control of our mind and we can just put our mind on that and it will stay there, but not so much. You might've noticed this in your own sitting. Um, and we have a lot of habit energy pushing us away from that awareness. You know, we spent our lifetime ignoring our breath and ignoring our happiness. So let's go through this gata that he offers us line by line. Breathing in, I calm my body. Breathing out, I smile. Dwelling in the present moment, I know this is a wonderful moment. So breathing in, I calm my body. A single mindful breath can calm the body, can calm you in a variety of situations. A single breath. A single breath taken in full awareness. So, you know, we don't have to make it into a big project. We don't have to make it a striving thing. We don't have to make it a, a test of whether we're doing it right or not right. We just simply have to take the breath and be aware of it. Try it right now. Take a breath in and a breath out and pay full attention to it and watch what happens. You may notice when you do that, that your body naturally relaxes a little bit. There might be muscles in your shoulders or maybe your neck or your face that relax when you take that breath that you didn't even know were tense. Breathing in, I calm my body. We don't have to actively calm our body. Simply paying attention to the breath will calm our body. It's okay if you don't feel this right away. Perfectly okay. You know, your body may not be ready to take it, that calmness in this first breath or the second breath. But I believe that if you come back repeatedly again and again and take that mindful breath, you will see this for yourself. But sometimes when we start, we're so far away because of our habit energies that it takes a while for those breaths to calm those habit energies enough that we can begin to notice that we're being calmed. It's not that the breath isn't working. It's that we don't know how to pay attention to what's actually happening. So I, I've experienced this myself. Uh, I know it took me a long time when I started to begin to even notice that this was calming me. But I stayed with it and eventually could see it. So I, I hope that you might trust his, uh, his guidance on this that, that says, yeah, breathing in, I calm my body. This is the result of breathing in. See if that works for you. So the second line, breathing out, I smile. We don't have to wait to be happy to smile. We can smile and make ourselves happy. It's called mouth yoga. You know, if we put our face in a smile, even a subtle smile, we can notice happiness is present. It's, it shouldn't be much of a mystery because it's been my experience that my mind labels what's happening in my body and says, oh, this is anger, this is um, uh, anxiety. But what I, what I perceive happening is that the mind is simply looking at what the body is doing and labeling it. That it's not two things, the body experience and the anger. The anger is the body experience. So when we say, when we, when we breathe out and we smile, happiness and the smile can be the same thing. When the body is happy, the mind is happy. 
and the mind is happy, the body is happy. They go together. So try that now. Try just try experimenting first, just a moment, with a smile, and see if you feel the happiness come as a result of changing your body. I can feel a warmth happen in my body as I smile and a lightness in my mind. So I think he's asking us to please be kind to ourselves and try this as well. Try smiling when we're unhappy and see if it changes something. You don't need We don't need to make our happiness into a big project. We can simply smile and happiness is there. Okay, so the next two lines, I'll take these together. Dwelling in the present moment, I know this is a wonderful moment. Dwelling in the present moment, I know this is a wonderful moment. Thich Nhat Hanh uses this phrase that I think is really um, beautifully but our appointment with life is in the present moment. Our appointment with life is in the present moment. He knows that we Westerners are project oriented. We're making lots of appointments. He knows that we're making appointments in the future. So he says, no, our appointment with life is now in this moment. We can't schedule happiness for the future. We can only have happiness now. It's now or never. If we don't know how to be happy now, to have our appointment with happiness in the present moment, even if the conditions are right in the future moment, we won't know how to be happy because we'll be in, we won't be in that future moment either. We'll be thinking about the next future moment. It's an endless chain. And I think we can recognize that, that we all express that endless chain. Never in the moment we're in, always thinking about the next one. So when the next one comes, we're not in that one either. So he says, our appointment with life is in the present moment. And knowing that this is a wonderful moment means knowing that conditions are always good enough for us to be awake. Always. We simply need to bring ourselves back to the present moment so that we can recognize that. When we're in the present moment, we're not caught thinking about the past and the future. We're not caught thinking that happiness is under another set of conditions than these. When we come back to the present moment, we actually do see that this moment is sufficient for my happiness. This moment is sufficient even though my knee hurts even though my computer is acting up. This moment is sufficient for me to be happy. I don't have to solve those problems for my happiness to be present. So this is why the book is called Peace is Every Step. Because we're not stepping and stepping and stepping on the path to getting to a peaceful future. We are in having peace in every step. If we're not peaceful this step, we can't hope the next step to be peaceful. If we're not awakening with this breath, we can't hope to awaken with the next breath. Peace is every step. So let's open this up for discussion. I've, I've said my few words to mangle and confuse things. Um, and it's probably best off to have just left it with Thich Nhat Hanh's words, because he says it so beautifully. But I'd like to open it up for, for some discussion and um, see what, what's arising for all of you. And unfortunately, I've sort of gone on and on and on tonight. So uh, we don't have that much time for discussion. <laughs> my apologies. <laughs> So what say you, friends? Yeah. 
I, when I was reading this, uh, and it came up today as well in a situation, uh, but I remember this phrase, take a breather. Uh, and it's so, and I had been reading this and I had been in a kind of so a pressure. Are you speaking to us? I don't hear you. Uh, I see your, oh. move, your, your yeah. mouth moving, but I don't hear anything. Really? Oh. Do others hear? We can hear. Yeah, yeah. I hear. You can hear? Okay. I don't hear you. I unmuted I it, so let's see. No, you're not. Yeah, you're not muted. Yeah, no, no I could hear her. Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> oh, well, I'm the only one not hearing. I'm the only one not hearing. Oh, I'm so sorry. Let me make some changes. <laughs> John, oh, I wonder listening. if you're... I wonder if your little ear pods are... Uh, they must have died. died. Oh, I'm so sorry to interrupt you, Sue. <laughs> oh, that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. John, can you hear? I can, yes. Oh, oh can you hear me? sorry. Okay. <laughs> yes, I can hear you. <laughs> No, it's just a real quick thing that I was in a pressured situation today and I had read this piece previously and I was thinking, oh, take a breather, like just breathe. And so when I was in this pressured situation, uh, that phrase came, take a breather, take a time out, take a breath, take a breather. So that was my application of it today. John, when you were um, doing the um, the last one that you were doing, the breathing in, I calm my body, breathing out, I smile. I, I thought so much of my mother because my mom was quite an amazing woman, but she underwent a lot of adversity in her life. And she had a thing always she always smiled and it didn't matter whether she was in the grocery store or walking down the street or driving her car and there was no one else there i think she just <laughs> smiled and and she just i she just said i feel so much better if i smile and also um and that brought that to mind and it was really dear to me and then also Another practice that I did, they had an actual exercise that they had you do. And in one of them was, um, it was, it had two parts. One of them was deliberately smile until you feel happy. And then after you've done that a while, then they have you deliberately say, think to yourself, I feel happy. I feel happy until you smile. And that to me was the connection between your mind and your body, between your thoughts and your smile muscles. And it was an interesting exploration. So anyway, thanks for the reminder of my mother. John, I don't, I don't hear you. No, don't hear you. Oh, I don't, I, I don't think you're muted. No, you're not muted. Oh, oh I'm sorry. <laughs> I can hear. I wonder if the device, your John's device, is muted. I don't see that I, I can see muting and unmuting here, but I, I, 
it doesn't seem to make a difference. I don't see him muted now uh, over Zoom. So the device itself must somehow be muted. It must be, yeah. You can use Sandra. Hmm. Is, is Peggy nearby? Could you go share hers? Looks like everybody's muted. Well, John wasn't muted. Oh. Oh, and you're muted. We still don't hear you. Wait, let me make sure she's not muted. Oh, here we go. I I just unmuted. No, I can't unmute. Muted. It shows Peggy is is muted, unfortunately. Yeah, I can't unmute Peggy for some. Oh, there Can we go. you hear me now? Yeah, we got gotcha. you. Okay. 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 Well, uh, thank you for that because uh, that also reminded me of my mother and my mother. One of the things that she always used to ask me when I was a young, cantankerous young young boy is, uh, would you like to take the garbage out? I go, no, I wouldn't like to take the garbage out. Or would you like, she always asked me if I'd like to do things before she'd ask me to do a chore, you know, and I'd always tell her, no, I wouldn't really like to do that. And then finally she told me that, you know, if you can't find joy in your work, then it's really not worth doing. Then it's, there's always joy to find. And so that was a that was a real great gift, and uh, that's what this reminds me of: is finding joy in everything. And that smile that you're talking about, whenever I, whenever I'm perplexed, you know, and I think about my mother and I generate that smile. That's that changes it all. Anyway, that's it. Um, because I'm on my iPhone, I can't see you. Someone else talking? No, go ahead, Margo. Oh, thank you. I wanted to share that um, I made lasagna for a dear friend who's been ill, and it takes me four or five hours um, from roasting the poblano peppers to dicing the garlic and sauteing it and the onions, and, and the whole thing is just, a joyful practice, and um, we had the chapter present moment, wonderful moment. And people used to make fun of the way I cut vegetables because I don't chop, 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 chop. I do chop, chop, <laughs> chop. And it, as I say, it takes like five hours, and it's just so touching to me to be able to do something mindfully in, at this point in my life because it took a while to get here. And I thank my sangha. I thank my teachers. Thank you. So... I was really touched by the um, uh, the smile, the the dandelion has my smile. One thing that I noticed is that um, it's for me it's it's easy to um, go to my body. So breathing in, I'm calming my body, and breathing out, I'm smiling. It's a practice that I just, I mean, it just, I'm doing it every day since I read that. It's, it's easy. But now the two sentences after that, dwelling in the present moment, this is a wonderful moment, is it's <laughs> so much harder to grasp for me. So I'm sticking with the, the simple body thing right now. And I also wanted to share that I, I, I really enjoy the, 
your talk about Thais, uh, about Thich Nhat Hanh uh, life. And I had, um, it reminded me of actually of my grandmother. I learned not long ago that uh, she lost her father when she was 16 at the end of um, World War II. And sorry, it's a lot of feelings, emotions. And he was, he was uh, walking with a group of people who were um, rescuing everybody. I mean, they didn't look um, which side they were. And he was shot doing that. And I, I had no idea. So, and it's kind of meaningful with my own story. Thank you. Well, we've gone past our usual time, and uh, I apologize for taking so much of that. Um, uh, so I, I, I want to honor our time boundaries. Uh, if, if, does anyone have anything else that's really on their heart that they'd like to share before we, before we uh, have a couple of announcements and go on our way? Okay, so the, no announcement or no, nothing else about this. Then next week, let's read through page 20 together, through page 20. And then we'll, we'll be able to get right to the reading and the responding um, without the other um, introductory talk that I gave about Thich Nhat Hanh's life. So we'll be able to have more time for discussion uh, going forward. Uh, and also, if, if uh, you have some suggestions about uh, how to improve this since this is a new thing for us to be meeting online and we may be meeting online for the foreseeable future. Uh, so please, uh, you know, let me know and let's try and integrate uh, those in and, and make this as, uh, as smooth and useful as we can. Okay, how about announcements? Sandra, we don't hear you. I can't hear her. Oh, I thought I unmuted everybody and I <laughs> muted myself. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> anyway, um, I thought this was um, not as, not as, of course, not like live and in person, but I think it was a pretty decent substitute and I really enjoyed the, the study part of it. But anyway, on the announcement, announcements i wanted to point out that we we can't have the donna basket of course sitting here for everyone and so um on each email that we send out with our mail system or you know on in the footer it has the support amc link and i just want to encourage you to get familiar with that it, it leads you to our page and it has the link there for, you know, donations and stuff. I'm not worried about it at the moment, but I know it's going to be difficult to um, sustain the Sangha without continuing because the, week, the weekly, what goes in the Donable, it's not a lot, but it's enough to, you know, the backbone of what we do. And so anyway, all that is so appreciated. And I'm trying to think what else, John, did we talk about? But did we talk about anything else that we wanted to announce? Uh, I can't think of anything now. Um, we'll have an upcoming meeting uh, of the general uh, general Sangha meeting in April. And so we'll, we'll um, have some people that will be coming off the board. So people who might be interested in supporting the Sangha with some of that work 
it's not a lot of work uh, to be on the board. It's actually kind of fun. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, so, if, you know, start thinking about that. If you, if you feel like you might have, be able to do one of the jobs, the jobs would be things like uh, treasurer, um, president, who, who just sort of gets this together and comes up with the agenda. Uh, we have a secretary. Um, and we have a, um, the role that Sandra's been playing as the communications person. So if people are interested in, in that. One of the things that I'm sort of looking for in, uh, too in the meantime is someone who might have experience with doing things like, like Zoom that might want to be the administrative administrator while we meet. Because I'm finding it really kind of difficult for me to try to administer the saga, you know, make sure everyone's got the right muting on or off and all those kinds of questions and also do the content part. I think they're, they're hard to hold both of those. So if you have uh, some computer knowledge and would like to uh, volunteer to be the one who sort of monitors things, Sandra stepped in at the last moment to do it tonight. Um, but she does so much for us. I, I, I hope to, that we can spread it around. I don't want to burn out Sandra. She's such a lovely, wonderful part of our Sangha and uh, well, she's so capable of so many things. I was a greenhorn. I had no idea <laughs> tonight. So <laughs> but so it's not very hard. That's my point. So, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway. So should okay. we dedicate our merits and be on our way? Yeah. Okay. So we can do the chant as we usually would do. <clears throat> May the merits of this practice benefit all beings and <laughs> it sounds like a choir. <laughs> That's interesting. When we have a delay, we can't all do it at the same time. Can we? <laughs> oh my goodness. That's so good. Uh, thank you all. I'm so glad.